0: You would again uh, take out your Bible, and let's turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we'll begin reading in verse 9 through verse 22. Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. These are the generations of Noah. I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it the length of the ark three hundred cubits, its breadth fifty cubits, and its height thirty cubits. Make a roof for the ark. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives, with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kinds. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive And also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask... Oh God, that you would bless this reading of the Word. And we pray now, Father, for the preaching of your Word. Be with this your servant. Our prayer, God, is that we would understand what is given here. That we can appreciate uh, your reason for pouring out wrath. But also, God, may we see the Gospel. May we see how your grace poured out on Noah points us the grace which is found in Jesus Christ. As we pray, Father, you bless our time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world of broken promises. We live in a world where commitments are made and broken. Trust between men is frayed. Where certainty in anything seems unattainable. When Jesus said that all the law and the prophets depend on loving God and loving our neighbor, the Lord reminds us that there is an inseparable connection between the two tables of the law. The love of God, which is the vertical, and the love of neighbor, which is the horizontal. We fail to love our neighbor because we first fail to love God. So mankind, in breaking promises, in failing one another, in our commitments to one another, fails to love God and neighbor. And yet, despite our broken promises, despite the fact that we do not keep our promises with our fellow men, and we do not keep our promises with God, despite our broken promises... The promise-making and promise-keeping God has not abandoned us. The Lord has not forsaken His people, but in fact is rescuing His creation and is restoring His people to new life in Him. You and I may be unfaithful in our commitments, but God is always faithful in His. And this is really the big lesson that we see in Noah and the flood. God is, by His very nature, covenantal. God is, by His very nature, covenantal. You see this, actually, even in His being. We see the covenantal, covenantal nature of God in His being. God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, and yet three persons. Each person of the triune God exists in unceasing devotion and love toward the other. And in His gracious condescension, God has entered into covenant with human beings as well. That is to say, God has covenanted with His elect people. Now, in our present text, we will note that this is the first time that we see the term covenant. Uh, That is, the Hebrew term berit. Uh, And since this is a key concept, uh, particularly, uh, well, in the Old Testament, particularly it means throughout the whole of Scripture, uh, it is important that we understand what this means. Now, covenant is a bond or an oath which involves certain mutual commitments. A covenant is a bond or an oath which involves certain mutual commitments. Promises. Promises to do certain things. To to protect people. To provide. To rescue. Sometimes... In a covenant, both parties in this covenant arrangement must do something, and sometimes it's only one party that is doing something. And so, although this is the first time the term covenant shows up in the scriptures, the concept of the covenant has actually been there all along. God has committed Himself. We have seen already His promise. We saw this back in Genesis chapter 3, in verse 15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Here, God promises to spare Noah, to save him from the judgment which was to come. So God entered into covenant with him. God entered into covenant with his people through Jesus Christ. And the covenant was, in fact, ratified in His blood. His sacrifice on the cross on behalf of those who are united to Him by faith. In Christ, God is covenanted with us. And unlike the promises of men and the covenants of men, God's covenants, God's promises are sure and true. And so as we come to our text in Genesis... We, we are coming to what is actually another, a new Toldoth, that is a new section, which begins like the other ones. Remember we talked about the Toldoth, there are ten of these throughout. It's how Genesis is separated. Uh, the generations of, each. Anytime you see that in Genesis, that means it's a new, a new section. These are the generations of. Now one thing to note, uh, although you know, Noah is mentioned, says these are generations of Noah, Noah is mentioned, he's throughout this section, and you might think that Noah is sort of the main character of the story, but actually, he's really not. He's he's important, of course, Um, but it's not really about Noah. Noah's not the hero of the story, God is the main character. God is the one who's the hero. In the story. And that's important to understand. Noah walked by faith, this is for sure, but the hero of the story is God Himself. It is God who is rescuing the people, it is God who is keeping His promises. And so we begin with a familiar introduction of the generations of Noah, and then we read that Noah is compared with the other people of his present time. Noah, we see, was called a righteous man, blameless. He walked with God. Now we already know from the previous section that mankind had become totally corrupt. In fact, it says that every intention of his heart was wickedness all the time. Now, in comparison to the wickedness and to the violence of his generation, Noah was a righteous man. Noah was blameless. He was like Enoch who had come before him. He walked with God. Which is to say that Noah had a covenant relationship with God just as Enoch had. Noah Walked in God's ways, he walked in his statutes. Noah lived to please the Lord. Now again, this is in direct contrast to his contemporaries, whose every intention and thought of their heart was only evil continually. Noah was faithful, but his faithfulness is not seen in his words. Not not so much. It's really seen in his actions. At least what we have recorded for us in the scriptures. Noah believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. He walked with the Lord. Noah lived by faith and did what was right. This is really what we read in James chapter 2 about the Christian life, isn't it? Noah's actions vindicated his true saving faith in the Lord. And he's enabled to do this because we saw in verse 8 that he had found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Which is to say that the initiative didn't begin with Noah. It actually began with God. It is God who showed favor on Noah. It is God who allowed Noah then to walk with him as a righteous and blameless man in his generation. This is how God does it. This is how God saves Now we'll note also, uh, we are introduced immediately to the three sons, uh, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. And we'll want to sort of tuck that away in the back of our mind, because they come later in the story. But here they're just kind of mentioned. But again, this is not about them either, right? It's about God. The section is about the work of God saving people and the obedience of Noah. Now again, Noah is presented as a light in a dark world. Uh, He's a model of piety and righteousness in contrast to the hostile and wickedness of the world. And is here again reminded uh, of the seed of the woman in the battle against the seed of the serpent. So we have that in play as well. Now it's interesting, uh, this is also the first time, that's the first time that covenant is mentioned, it's also the first time that terms blameless and righteous are used in the Bible. Righteousness has to do with how a person lives. It's a combination of their actions and their ethics. And To be righteous is to live in God's way, in accordance with God's rule to serve the interests of others, your neighbor and your heavenly king, not your own interests. Thus a righteous man would gladly disadvantage themselves in order to advantage others in accord with that which is right, according to natural law and the revealed law of God. This is righteousness. To be blameless literally means to be whole or complete. To be whole or complete. This has to do with a wholehearted commitment to a relationship. And so when combined, these terms indicate that Noah was wholly committed to righteousness before the Lord. He was wholly committed to his God. The people of Noah's day had no room to criticize Noah for his conduct. And being blameless, he abstained from sin. Now, of course, Noah wasn't sinless. We have to understand. Noah was not perfect. But he was committed to living righteously. This is also, by the way, how we ought to live. We ought to be committed to living righteously. Uh, we're not we're going to fall short of the glory of God. Understand that. We're sinners. But we ought to be committed towards that. We ought to be going in that direction. We ought to be seeking to walk by the Spirit as transformed spiritual people. In a similar way, David, though he was a great sinner, and remember, I mean, what was David's sin? David was an adulterer and a murderer. And yet he was said to be a man after God's own heart he could be called he, he could he could still claim be blameless before the lord well why would that be if he's a murderer and adulterer because he walked by faith as a repentant and transformed man and so noah like enoch before him was said to have walked with god enoch of course was saved from death He lived 365 years and then was no more. Noah was saved from the flood. And so we're introduced here to Noah as a righteous and blameless man, a man who walks with God, a man who is like others who walked by faith and obedience before the Lord, but unlike his own generation. Noah walked with the Lord. He walked by faith. And so Noah is righteous before God, and we're reminded again in verse eleven of the corruption of the earth. And so you see, kind of this back and forth. We're introduced to the corruption, then we learn about righteous Noah. And then, oh by the way, the 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 world is really, really bad. If I hadn't mentioned it yet, the whole of creation has been defaced and disfigured because of sin. Was morally corrupt. Was in complete ruin. Well, oh, how bad was it? Well, it was really, really bad. Violence filled the earth. And then, of course, violence could refer to a wide range of crimes, including unjust treatment, deadly assault, rape, murder, you name it. Violence. Whereas God had blessed mankind with family and the power to fill the earth. Remember, uh, man was told to take dominion to fill the earth. Fill the earth with people to subdue the earth. Instead, what man did uh, has done was to fill and subdue the earth with violence. Mankind had taken the good gifts of God and had used those for corrupting purposes. And so God was very aware of the corruption and violence on the earth. And even in our own day, God... By the way, God's seeming inaction against sin does not mean that he's unaware or doesn't care, which by the way people do say, well God, obviously well I can't believe that God who obviously just allows all these horrible things to happen. It isn't because God doesn't care. By the way we as Christians we could do this too, right we, uh, Lord just, just just destroy everybody right? Like as if we, we sort of despise all those really horrible sinners. Kill them all God. You have to remember, this is a time of grace. What are we praying? That they would repent. That, that judgment's coming, and, and we see that, that God does judge. It's not that God is unaware or does not care, but He's patient and forbearing. God is very aware God is forbearing with man as the church brings the gospel to the nations. And, you know, know, we were reminded actually at Presbytery uh, about Jesus' disposition towards the crowds. You might remember from Matthew chapter 9, it says that the people were like harassed sheep without a shepherd. And what does Jesus do? He shows compassion on them. Jesus was compassionate to the crowds. God will punish sin. God will deal with corruption. And the fact is that all flesh had become corrupt. This is what was the fact in Noah's day, which means, by the way, when it says all flesh, this means that even the animals had become corrupt because of the sin of people. Man's fall has affected even the creatures. And so there's a connection between human morality and the natural world. And Paul, by the way, makes this very point in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, when he says this, For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. Jesus will set free even the creation from bondage to corruption. Sin has caused a total breach in the created order, even on the part of the creatures, as some have transgressed their God-given boundaries. But one day, the creation will be freed from corruption, will be returned to the glorious state in which it was in. But at this point in redemptive history, at this point in Noah's day, God had determined to undo what he had created. Even as he was to show grace in rescuing a remnant. And so verse 13 says, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. It's here that God brings Noah into his confidence. He reveals his will to him. God has determined to destroy the world which is filled with violence. And so God instructs Noah to do something. He says, I'm going to destroy the earth, so you're going to need to build an ark. God does not leave man's salvation to human imagination. God doesn't say, "Well, no, I'm going to destroy the earth. Good luck. I hope you figure something out." No, He doesn't leave it to human imagination. He gives him explicit instructions as to what to be done. You know, too, He doesn't just say, "Oh, hey, Noah, build a boat." He's like, "I'm going. You need to do this, and here's how you're going to do it, Noah." Noah was to make a vessel of gopher wood. Now, uh, gopher, gopher wood, this is actually a a transliteration from Hebrew. This has nothing to do with rodents, in case you were wondering. It's actually a transliteration of of it. We don't actually know what gopher wood is. Some species of wood, um, whatever it is, though, it was the right one to use. It was the correct, this is the wood you need to use, Noah. And then he, he gives, him, uh, gives Noah the, the, the pre- precise dimensions. He tells him how to finish the, the ark. Now, as we read this, 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 it may seem like these details are not very important, right? You might even, as you read on your own, you might think, well, this is, seems kind of unimportant. Sort of read through it, like, I'll go for wood and dimensions and, you know, finish it, you know, all, how, how it's to be finished and the decks, all that. seems It seems sort of like, well, is this really all that important? Well, here's why it actually is important. Uh, because there are other flood stories, What's critical to understand is that unlike many of the other ancient Near Eastern flood stories, like that found in the Gilgamesh epic, for instance, the boat described here would be seaworthy. In fact, we know it was seaworthy because there's been replicas of it made. The other flood epics have ships or boats of various sorts also, which would basically be cubes in which nobody could ever survive in over the course of a year, because that's actually how long the flood took. But this gives dimensions of a seaworthy ship. Oh, and by the way, the Hebrew people, not seagoing people, it's not like, well, you know, they know how to build boats and so that's how it got into the text. No, they, they, didn't, they, they didn't like the ocean. They didn't go do that sort of thing. Uh, and yet here we have the exact precise dimensions of a ship which would work. It was seaworthy. Uh, the ark was approximately the size of half of a football field. It had the appropriate dimensions to have the capacity for the cargo necessary to make it seaworthy. It's also helpful that there have been replicas built which have proven the seaworthiness of the ark described here. And so the, the description of the ark, which is by the, by the way, how they were to be saved, right? They were to be in the ark to be saved, it's bookended with the declaration of God's of the earth's destruction. I'm going to destroy. Here's, how, here's, here's the means of salvation through build this, and anybody in it is going to live. All flesh which has the breath of life will be destroyed out there. Because then at verse 17, so have verse 13 and verse 17, which end up, our book ends, in between is the means of salvation. Because what is coming is a flood which would bring total destruction. There was to be no escape for human beings or animals. Any creature from the wrath of God which is to come. And by framing the construction plans for the ark between these two oracles, we are drawn to the means of salvation which was to come to those who find their way into that ship. In fact, this is made more explicit starting in verse 18. As God establishes his covenant with Noah and with creation, which was to be spared. And so, despite the vast destruction which has, was announced... God has provided a means of deliverance for his chosen remnant, which would include men and representatives of each of the kinds of creatures from among the animals, creeping things, birds. These were all to be spared in the ark. Noah had been made aware of the destruction to come. He was given instruction as to how to build the ark as his way of rescue. And now he's given specific assurance of the covenant promise. This is important too. Because it's not, again, that that Noah's left to his own devices. Noah, I'm going to bring a flood, build a boat, but good luck. No. Noah, not only am I providing you the means by which you're saved, but I promise you that you're going to make it through. Noah is not left as his own. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. I promise you, Noah. Now, again, I've noted, we noted earlier this is the first time the term covenant appears in Genesis. God is here establishing and confirming a promise which, in all actuality, had already been made. And the sign of his covenant will be seen later after the flood with the appearance of the rainbow. Now remember, Noah had found favor with God. And we're going to see later uh, in in future weeks at the midpoint of the flood, at the climax, which happens at at chapter 8, verse 1, we'll read this. At at the, the very center point of the flood, It says, but God remembered Noah. God doesn't forget. Noah had found favor with God because God had chosen Noah. And he remembers those he has poured out his special favor upon. Remember again, Lamech's prophecy concerning his son Noah was to bring relief to humanity's toil. God was going to work through Noah. Noah. And so the covenant promise in the short term was that Noah and his family and representative creatures would survive God's wrath through the means of the ark. They will benefit from God's graciousness and will be enabled to live secure for God's word is secure. They have no need to be fearful of the disaster which was to unfold before them. They will be brought safely through in God's provision. The covenant made with Noah is similar to what is sometimes called the royal grant. In the ancient Near East, this was where a god would bestow a benefit or a gift upon a king. Here, God is granting a great benefit to Noah. You will be saved through the flood. The form of this covenant is very similar to that which was made with Abraham and with David. But unlike the Mosaic Covenant, where uh, there were stipulations for man and for God, here it is God alone who is under under compulsion. It is God alone who is fulfilling the requirements of the covenant promise. Noah isn't charged to do anything in particular beyond obediently building the ark. That's all he needed to do. Just build the boat, Noah. Noah. It is God Himself who saves Noah and his family. The Lord had obligated Himself to rescue all those who had found themselves inside of the ark. He was, he was saving them from destruction. The initiative and the burden of the covenant fell upon the maker of the covenant, and that is God Himself. Noah, for his part, was simply to walk by faith. And in this way, the narrative implies that Noah had a relationship with the Lord. Noah had found favor with God, had walked with God, and his demonstration of faith was found in his obedience by building. He built a boat in the middle of land. We may not really appreciate the radicalness of what he has done here. Noah was a herald of righteousness, 2 Peter 2 tells us. He built the ark because God had told him to do it. Not because, it's not because he saw the storm clouds brewing. Oh, I better build something. No, he did it because God told him to do it. And in this sense, Noah lived by faith. He built by faith, not by sight. Noah was a representative of God's covenant promises and in the ark humanity would be saved from destruction of the flood and much like this through Christ and in him all those who trust and rest in him are saved from their sins are saved from the wrath of God which will one day be poured out on all of humanity as well Noah was obedient to God because and because of his obedience, his family and humanity was saved from the flood. Christ was perfectly obedient to the law of God, both actively in his active obedience and his passive obedience, and by his obedience he imputes to us his righteousness. So in this way Noah and the story of the flood although it's an, you know it's obviously a nice sunday school story for children but this is a, this is this is about the gospel This is a presentation of the gospel it is redemptive history in miniature, pointing us to the greater Adam, pointing us to the greater Noah, pre- pointing us to the greater Moses, the greater David. That is to say, the one who fills the three whole office of prophet, priest, and king. The one who mediates a better covenant, which is enacted on better promises. This is about the gospel of Jesus Christ and his saving humanity. And so the covenant made with Noah was to save him, his family, from the waters of the flood. It's ratified later with a rainbow. And I'll just mention briefly, the rainbow, what does a bow do? Well, you shoot an arrow with a bow. Consider the direction in which the bow is pointed. God had set up a covenant in which he was responsible and he also was demonstrating it even through a weapon being pointed in his direction. That's the picture of the rainbow. It's also pretty. We read uh, that Noah was instructed to gather two of every living creature, male and female, into the ark. Of course, the purpose of this was to replenish the earth. Twice in our passage, uh, in verses 19 and 20, it says that the ark was to keep them alive. That's being stressed. This was God's purpose. God's purpose was promising life. Because certain death existed outside of the protecting walls of the ark. But inside was life. Again, this is a picture of salvation in Christ. Outside of Christ, there's death. In Christ, there's life and salvation and the kingdom. There was to be a continuation of the created order of things. God was sparing that which which he had declared to be very good. Remember, in creation, he he declared everything to be very good. All the animals, the clean and the unclean, were to be brought, and we see that of the clean animals that there were additional ones brought for sacrifices offered after the flood. But it is of importance to note that it's representatives of all the kinds of animals. There were none that were to be left out, with exception, of course, of the water creatures who could survive on their own. And so, along with the animals, Noah was also to bring the necessary food, as well as his family. And finally, we see in verse, uh, uh, at, at the very end here, uh, of Noah's obedience. This is, again, a reoccurring theme in this section. Noah lived by faith. God told him that there was he was intending on flooding the earth of destroying, destroying creation, and further that he intended to spare Noah and his family through the ark. Noah was to build. Noah built as he was instructed. It says that he was obedient to God. He did all that God had told him to do. Well, but this is faith. Which you read in Hebrews eleven seven by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. Remember, he didn't. It's not like he looked into the future or or oh I see the, I see the storm clouds coming I better get to work. No, he it was unseen. In reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. His building was by faith. You know, it would have been easy to brush off the warnings of God for, uh, for the wickedness of his generation. Surely he thought Noah was a fool. What kind of fool builds a boat? What do you mean a flood? We've never heard of such silliness. Noah? Who builds a large boat where there's no water around to float it in? And yet Noah believed God. And you and I are called to do so as well. We're to live by faith and not by sight. We're to trust in that which we cannot see. Hebrews 11 reminds us, uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith is in that which is not seen, but it is not a blind faith. For we can trust in the promises of God. Noah trusted in God's promises. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. What Noah did is a model for later, later generations of obedience and faith. When we trust in God's word, there is blessing which comes. And this is illustrated very forcefully in the life of Noah. Noah's venture to build a ship on dry land while waiting for a flood over, by the way, a course of 120 years is an outstanding example of a person trusting in that which cannot be seen and yet trusting that God's promises are true. There's no precedent for the task Noah had been called to. It's not like there had been other people who had done this before him. There was no experience that Noah could draw from. He simply was to trust in the word of God. And, ironically enough, the destruction of the flood, which doomed the unrighteous, is for Noah vindication. For through the flood waters, his faith is credited to him as righteousness. He believed God. He trusted and rested in him who said that he would save him. And indeed, Noah was saved. Peter, in writing his second epistle, alludes to the problem of faith. For even in our own day, as there certainly were in Noah's day, or Peter's day too, there are scoffers. This is the problem of faith. People scoff your faith. And, well if you're anything like me you might think hmm, is there something to their scoffing? There are scoffers this is the problem with faith. there are those who look at, from the look at the world they look at the Christian faith and they say, you say Jesus is returning again soon but where is he? Why has he delayed? It's only been 2,000 years. Nothing has changed in this world, and nothing ever will. Do we think that there will be no judgment to come? We do not know when the time will come, but we are called to prepare. We're called to walk by faith. There is a day which is to come, the day of the Lord. The Lord will return as a thief in the night. No one knows when that day or time will be. But he will come and will judge all flesh. So will you be found as Noah living by faith? Will you be found in Christ as Noah and his family were found in the ark? Will you be found in Christ? This is the most pressing issue of this passage. No, of the entire scriptures. We are, like Noah, living in a generation of great wickedness. Many of our age are committed to autonomy and are headed to ruin and destruction. But there is hope for the wayward and for the lost. Salvation is offered for those who, would, by faith, trust, and rest in Christ. His work on the cross can set you free from bondage to sin. This is the pressing need of the Scriptures. This is the pressing need of our generation. In a world of broken men and women, in a world of broken promises, beloved, you and I can rest in the sure promises of God in Christ, who entered into the most holy place and there offered Himself so that you and I can inherit eternal life And God was true to Noah, and He is true to you and me as well. So where will you be found? On the day of judgment, will you be found in Christ? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this Gospel in miniature, this redemptive history in miniature as we see the salvation, and we're pointed forward to our Savior Jesus, that as you save Noah through the flood, will will we be found in Christ being saved from the fire of the day of the Lord. God, we also are grateful for your patience, for your patience towards sinners such as us that none of your elect may not or may, may, none of your elect would be left out as it were but all who are yours would come to saving faith in Jesus we thank you for your patience toward even us that like the, the, like Noah ushering his family and ushering all of the creatures into that boat you are ushering us into the kingdom in Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for your patience. Help us to be patient toward this generation as well. Help us to be those who proclaim this truth, that they may come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We thank you, O God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.